0: hello and welcome to the art of autism podcast i'm andy boyd i'm speaking today with dave osmundson a playwright and mfa candidate at arizona state university Dave's play Light Switch was a semi-finalist for the 2020 National Playwrights Conference, a finalist for the Carlo Anoni Playwriting Prize, and was long-listed for the Theatre 503 International Playwriting Award. It was recently produced in a digital version by Arizona State University. Let's get to our conversation. Hi Dave, how are you doing today? Hi, Andy. I am fabulous. How are you? <laughs> I like fabulous. That's good. Um, I, I'm, I'm doing okay. Yeah, hanging in there. Um, so you're a playwright, and I'd like to start off by just asking, what are some of your earliest memories involving either theater specifically or the arts in general?
1: Oh, wow. Uh, going way back here. Okay. my Probably my first memory of seeing a play or a musical it goes back to when i was four and my oma and my Opa took my sisters and i to see beauty and the beast on broadway and um i have like a very specific mem- i have a few very specific memories from that performance one of which was the uh the transformation scene um which is like i mean obviously that's like the one that really sticks in my mind um, and for some reason, I remember like, you know, looking behind me and seeing like the two balconies, cause I think the show was at the palace theater at the time, which had a two balconies. So I remember like looking back at the audience. Um, and so that's like my memory of my first Broadway show. So, so yeah. So where did you grow up, Dave? So I grew up in Pompton Plains, New Jersey, about 45 minutes outside of New York.
0: Did you get into the city a lot to see shows?
1: Oh, yeah. my um, um, When I was uh, growing up, my dad and I saw a show together like once or twice a month or so. And, oh, wow. Yeah, because uh, I was really into it. And when I was – I think I saw my first Broadway show by myself when I was – Thirteen, I think. Like my dad drove me in. I had a ticket to see uh, Christina Applegate and Sweet Charity. And like my dad, when my dad and I would do is he, we would he would get go to TKTS and um, buy a ticket for a show from there. And then I would see my show. He would see his show. And then we would meet back up depending on whose show got out first and he would drive me back home. So, um when we stopped so that was kind of the system we developed in terms so of So did like you have videos.
0: pretty Did you have pretty different tastes in shows?
1: Um somewhat um my dad and I both have like very a very dark sense of humor. So probably our um uh, our favorite show that we still quote to this day that we saw together was probably the Lieutenant of Inishmore by Martin McDonough. Like he Mm -hmm. also, he also took me to see the pillow man when I was 13. So, you know, great show for a 13 year old to see. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And, um, uh, and uh, we still quote from Lieutenant of Inishmore home sweet home when like there are like dead bodies all over the stage. Fun times.
0: (laughs) And you're, you're now pursuing an MFA in playwriting at ASU. Uh, When did you kind of transition from thinking of yourself as a, as an actor to thinking of yourself as a writer?
1: So I spent um, my middle school and high school wanting to act. Um, I had also thought about being a writer, but more like as a novelist and not necessarily a playwright. Um, And, when I got to undergrad, um, I I went to undergrad at Montclair State University, and I was in the BA in Theater Studies program. The great thing about this program is that you learned about acting, you learned about directing, you learned about design, you learned about dramaturgy, you learned about playwriting. Like you got a very well-rounded experience of theater, and um, at first, I thought I wanted to be in a BFA program, but I think within my first year, I kind of realized, no, I kind of like this more well-rounded approach to theater, especially when I realized, you know, I was a good actor, but I didn't necessarily have the talent or passion to, or drive to really make a career out of it. Like, I still knew I wanted to do theater, but not specifically acting, so I kind of accidentally stumbled upon dramaturgy and literary management and i figured okay well i like reading i like plays i like scripts like i like working on i like analyzing and criticizing and uh not criticizing that's a negative term but um i like evaluating um stuff so that seems like a logical path to take and i didn't think to write my own plays until I saw like a student written play at my school. And I remember like sitting there watching this play and everyone was around me sobbing and me thinking, this is one of the worst pieces of shit I've ever seen. <laughs> I I can write a better play than this. So mm-hmm. I wrote my first play and based on, um, like a friend, based kind of based on a friend of mine, and it, and I, I, uh, I put it up at my school, and it was a disaster. Um, it was, let's just say that flop sweat is one hundred percent real. And mm-hmm. I felt it. I just remember, like, that opening night. I was doing my own stage directions. And I just remember the audience hating the show. Like, I could feel the energy in Jeez. the room. And it was like... And by by that point, you know, I was already working on another play. I'm like, I kind of like this whole writing plays thing. and But after that experience, I was like, Welp, that was that was that was a disaster. Um, but I look back on that experience um, as a huge step in my um, progression as an artist because it really taught me how to fail.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: you know, obviously I've had many artistic failures since then, but I feel like that experience, like I got a taste of, you know, this is what it may be like to fail. And that is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, we need to work on as a playwright in terms, like I learned more about playwriting and new play development from that experience than like, I think pretty much any other new play development process I've been a part of since.
0: Yeah. There's no playwriting teacher like an audience, right? (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) Were you a, a kid who was always reading? Were you a reader as a, as a kid?
1: Oh yeah, um, I was. What kind
0: of, what kind of stuff did you like when you were a kid?
1: When I was a kid, I was really into R.L. Stein's Goosebumps novels, um, like anything um, related to like horror or the um, universal monster movies i was also really into that's actually kind of how i got into theater because one of the universal monsters although it's kind of problematic to say monster in this particular context was the phantom of the opera and when i found out that was a musical i wasn't really into musicals at the time but i was like oh i i can come i'll go see it and you know i saw it and i completely fell in love And then um, kind of, you know, as I learned more about different plays and musicals, you know, obviously a lot of shows are based on books. And I was like, oh, it may be nice to check out some of these books. So um, when I was taking a trip vacation to London, when I was in seventh grade of The Woman in White, the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical was playing at the time. And I was really intrigued by it. So I sought out the book and I read it and I was just so enthralled by it. And from then I kind of, I had like a period where I pretty much read nothing else but Victorian literature. Like I, that to me was like the gold standard of, where uh, of like, what literature was. And I mean, I, uh, I branched out since then. But like, there was a time where I just read pretty much nothing but like dark Gothic Victorian stuff. So fun times. (laughs)
0: Dave, you're making my job really easy as an interviewer, because that's a wonderful transition into talking about your play Light Switch, yes. which features a central character, Henry, who is obsessed with 19th century British literature to the exclusion of every other type of literature and seemingly every other type of culture. He's so so focused on this one interest. It, to what extent is that play kind of modeled after your own experiences?
1: Um, I always kind of I kind of consider that play the kind of the you know, what if I never really branched out beyond that type of literature, because when as I was going through high school, I remember being like very closed off to different types of literature. Like, um, I took a course in American literature, and that was kind of where I, I fell in love with F. Scott Fitzgerald and such. So it was kind of thanks to my schooling that I kind of expanded my literary palette. But in the case of Henry, I think Henry's hyperfixation on 19th century British literature is kind of more drawn from my experience having a hyper fixation on Broadway and musical mm-hmm. theater, because all throughout high school um, with a few exceptions, like I didn't listen to any type of music other than musical theater. Um, and I you know I obviously like I listened to like a few other artists but like for me it was mostly musical theater oh. and it's funny now I look at my iTunes and like I'm kind of surprised by how little musical theater there is on there now but there was a point in my life where like like it was all musical theater all the time so that's kind of where I kind of drew more Henry's hyperfixation from
0: that was one of the things I really appreciated at the play, because you do show by the end of the play that there is value for Henry in branching out and reading things, you know, outside of the the reign of this one particular British queen. <laughs> but also <laughs> but also you show that his ability to really drill down on this material and know it better than anybody else is actually a strength because he's he's pursuing a, a PhD. In, um, in in Victorian literature. And so, you know, something that might seem like, oh, that's a little bit too enthusiastic of an obsession in the context of a PhD program is completely normal.
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And uh, like, I remember um, being told when I was younger and I was really into theater, like you need to expand your horizons. And it's like musical theater is like the one thing that's kind of keeping me emotionally stable right now. So like, please don't yeah. take it from me. <laughs>
0: Sure, sure. Um, there's a, a detail in the book that I found really uh, intriguing, which is that Henry is writing a thesis on autistic characters in the novels of Jane Austen. Yes. Um, my my short question is: Do you think that there are autistic quest- characters in the novels of Jane Austen?
1: Yes, um, there are quite a few academic papers that have been written about this, but the. One character that uh, frequently gets cited the most is Mr. Darcy, who, you know, is shown to kind of have trouble reading different social cues, especially at the ball where you first meet Mr. Darcy. I have a, um, this is a, uh, actually, um, this used to be in the play, but I eventually cut it for time reasons. But I kind of made an argument in the play that Miss Bates, the garrulous spinster in Emma, was on the spectrum herself um obviously i'm not a psycho i'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist so i can't make an official diagnosis for anyone much less a fictional character but mm. i definitely think like there are arguments to be made for the presence of um neurodivergence in jane austen's work because she was i mean we we see jane austen as someone who just gave us beautiful romantic comedies but Her social satire is so spot on, and what it reveals about the human condition in the context of a deeply, deeply stratified society in terms of class, I think, are really valuable and sharp and witty. Like, she was so much more that, like, like, yeah, like she, yeah, she kind of invented the romantic comedy genre, but. We still read her today because there is so much more in her work, like the satire and the human condition.
0: Mm-hmm. And then one thing that intrigued me about that particular detail is just kind of the process that I think a lot of autistic people do of sort of picking characters that, uh, in, in media that might not be explicitly written as autistic characters, but saying, that's one of us. I'm can I I'm clocking that as one of us. <laughs> is that something that you do when you consume media? Um, sometimes
1: not, not overly frequently. I think the last, um, like the last time, like I really kind of had that Eureka moment about a character was a couple years ago. I was watching the film of my fair lady. This was before the revival opened. And I remember watching Henry Higgins and I'm like, this dude is very possi would very possibly be considered on the spectrum today because he is very hyper fixated on language and linguistics. He can you see in the opening scene he can like pinpoint exactly where an accent comes from with with like extremely piquant specificity. And I'm like I think and he's not unfortunately not very. Um, considerate of the needs of others um which is definitely kind of a negative stereotype about autistic people but i think there is like there's an argument to be made there that you know if this person were alive today you know they would likely be considered autistic on the spectrum or neurodivergent or what have you
0: um one aspect of the play that I also find interesting uh, is that it's, it's sort of a coming out story in a way. Um, Why did you want to kind of tell a a story about both being autistic and being queer? Because I had seen
1: no other media about it. Um, (laughs) None. Like I was really trying to think about, I'm like, I really can't think of another example. Um, When I because a lot of the media I had seen in terms of autistic characters were straight white dudes with the exception of Temple Grandin. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm like, there are, and a lot of these narratives were given to us by people not on the spectrum. And I'm like, well, theater talks such a big game about diversity and inclusion. And yet so many of the plays about neurodivergence you know, are not from actually autistic creators and there are so many other experiences of neurodivergence beyond straight white men and i'm queer and i think there are some intersections there with neurodivergence so it was kind of like a why not write this play and then kind of just see what happens
0: I, I've seen estimates that are like, you know, something like maybe 40% of autistic people are LGBTQ in, in some way. So it's certainly a, a very fruitful uh, area of, of study and, and of uh, of inspiration.
1: Yeah, no, a lot has been written about it academically, but yeah, you're likelier to identify as LGBTQ if you are neurodivergent. And I think it would just be like like, that's not something I think we can or should ignore. You know? So mm-hmm. that was kind of why I wrote Light Switch. I really wanted to say, hey, here's another neurodivergent narrative for y'all to consider.
0: And it's also, I mean, of course it's notable that Henry is queer, but it's also notable that Henry has a sexuality at all as an autistic character in a play. I mean, that is that even that is quite rare.
1: Yeah. Um, autistic people have sex, too. Uh, so <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah um, yeah, there's so many things that I think are great from a kind of a representation angle about this play. And you know another one is just that while we we see Henry as an autistic uh, child, and then we see Henry as an autistic adult, you know, not without any problems, but certainly, you know, thriving and making an impact in the world and forming relationships. And, and I feel like you rarely see that uh, kind of full temporal picture of an autistic life.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, Something else that I've been kind of thinking about the last couple of years is how so many neurodivergent narratives are either inspiration or tragedy. And they're just, Mm there just isn't an in between there where like autistic characters can kind of just be human beings. And I think, you know, by so many stories only operating at polar opposites of that spectrum, no pun intended, Mm -hmm. um, is that you really miss the complexity of the complexity and the humanity of right. a neurodivergent individual. And, you know, one of the, one of the, another one of the reasons I wrote Light Switch is to center an autistic character, because that play could also be about Henry's roommate, Raji, who is like a thriving gay man and his autistic roommate, which that would be one play, but... But to me, it was just like, you know, why not center Henry in his own story? Because Mm -hmm. there's this whole other story, a whole other play going on in that dynamic.
0: Right. And and why did you decide that you wanted to kind of tell not a full life story, but, but you have all these flashbacks to earlier parts in his life? Why did you feel like that was important in the story you wanted to tell?
1: I think it was important for the flashbacks to show Henry's growth and development and how, you know, not just how he changes as an autistic person, but also how his views on the literature he loves changes. Like even though he's very like set in um, only reading those books, um, you know, and how he talks about the pride and prejudice um uh, ending and how that evolves like throughout the play. Like, like I kind of wanted to show that, you know, he may still be hyper fixated on this literature, but that doesn't mean that his perspective and takes on this literature can't change. Like, I think it's very harmful to say that, you know, autistic people are incapable of change.
0: Mm. When like,
1: you know, I, you know, a lot of the musicals that I grew up, I was younger. Like I look at through another lens entirely today and like it doesn't mean like like i it's like i i can still you know watch the same material but have a different take on it like even as an autistic individual so that's why i think it was really important to show henry's growth to show that even in like small ways henry as an autistic person is still capable of change Mm
0: mm-hmm and and part of what you have to do to show Henry to be capable of change is to show Henry as somebody who has flaws that are not reducible to his autism, right? Definitely. Um, one aspect of the character that I really identified with is the feeling that uh, books are sometimes better companions than people. <laughs> um, is that something that you've felt at least at, at times in your life? Um. Not to the extent that Henry does.
1: Um, I'm, I mean, I, I'm not too much of a people person. I'm definitely an introvert. Like when the pandemic started, I was like, oh, like I get to be an introvert and actually, you know be safe doing it okay great Mm -hmm. i can do that so 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 one of the benefits of that of the of you know being in quarantine was hey i have like i can't really see theater i'm not really safe going to the movies like i still have a bunch of books i can read Mm -hmm. so it's like you know that they kind of like got me through a time where i couldn't see theater or or film, at least live theater
0: Mm mm-hmm I think for a lot of autistic people, when the pandemic hit, it was sort of a like, this is what we trained for moment.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I read somewhere um, uh, that one of the reasons that Zoom fatigue is such a thing, and Zoom fatigue is definitely a thing, um, Mm -hmm. is that since you're on box, since everyone's in boxes and they're virtual, you have to act, you have to... um, work harder to read social cues that you would normally pick up on in person. And I'm kind of like, well, welcome to my (laughs) world, (laughs) y'all.
0: Yeah. Do you think it's going to make them more sympathetic?
1: I hope so. I doubt it, but I hope so.
0: (laughs) One can hope, right? Yep. Um, One of the things I wonder about this play is, you know, in most circumstances, if you're writing a play, It'll be seen mostly by people who are not autistic, just based on you know, statistics. Um, how much thought did you put into kind of how you would represent an autistic character to an audience that might not really know anything about autistic people or might have wildly misinformed ideas about autistic people?
1: I love that question. I mean, the best thing I can do as a playwright, um, and as an autistic playwright is to, this is such like a celebrity interview thing to say, but like, just write with as much truth as possible. I say that like in a kind of sardonic tone, but I think in this case, um, it's it has a lot of value because all I can do is write about my own experience. And, you know, that may not line up with another person's experience with an autistic person. But um, one thing I, ha- I'm, I am actually pretty proud of that this I've noticed this play has been doing. And I know, and I had a few people say this in the top acts we did for my school just did a virtual production of this play um, uh, in the last weekend of February. And um, one of the things that you know a lot of people said were really, like you know, like the whole light switch metaphor, like I totally get that. In terms of how, um, in terms of, you know, how autistic people may think. Now, I do not prefer to, um, say that every autistic person has that specifically, but it's my own experience with autism Mm -hmm. kind of distilled into a metaphor. So could,
0: could you explain that metaphor a bit for people who haven't read the play? Yeah, sure.
1: So so there's a scene in the play where Henry is talking to the guy he has a crush on and uh, Joseph. and Joseph asks Henry, you know what's it like to have autism. You've learned that Joseph has a severely autistic brother. So he asks Henry what's it like to have autism and Henry has a monologue um, about how it's, for him, it's like a light switch where if the conversation is about 19th century British literature, it turns on and he's there and he can talk. But when it's not, it kind of shuts off.
0: Mm-hmm. And in the
1: case of Henry, it's like one big light switch. But he notices how in other people, they have different light switches that they can seem to turn on and off at will. And part of why Henry feels so isolated is that he does not have those multiple light switches. So that, so that's generally as pertains to interest. But there's also a metaphor of you know having a light switch for someone romantically, as in like you turn me on. Maybe that's a bit on the nose, but that's um, yeah, that's basically the light switch metaphor as it is portrayed in the play.
0: Mm-hmm. Who are some of your inspirations as a writer?
1: I always say that if Annie Baker, Amy Herzog, and David Lindsay at had a threesome and had a bastard child out of that threesome, I would be the result. Um, because, <laughs> because I love Annie Baker's. And Amy Herzog's realism, although Annie Baker's work, um, her more yeah. recent work, like The Antipodes and John, kind of has a more metaphysical aspect to it, whereas Amy Herzog is pretty strictly realistic. And then David Lindsay-A-Bear, um, I just love how... Like he, I mean, he can write like a realistic suburban play like rabbit hole, but he also has a play called the devil and a devil inside, which is just hilarious and wild and just bonkers. And like, I kind of like the way that he allows his characters to have humor, even in the most dire of circumstances. Like that's something I like to give to my characters. Um, Like I always, I, I. I always uh, quote, have that quote um, from that song, um, Little Girls from Annie. Like, I'd have cracked years ago if it weren't for my sense of humor. And I think that's kind of how I <laughs> see my characters. It's like, these people would have, like, cracked a long time ago if they did not have their sense of humor. So that's why I, I kind of cite them as inspirations. I also um, – another playwright whose work I really love is um, – uh, Samuel D. Hunter, um, who wrote The Whale and, um, uh, Greater Clements, um, so, yeah, I, yeah, generally playwrights who have, who are mostly realistic, but, like, kind of have those moments where, like, the, emotional, the emotions get to such a frenzy that the veil kind of opens up and that the metaphysical enters. Because that's mm-hmm. something I like to incorporate in my work as well. Like even in Light Switch, you have like the light switch is like going off at the end of the first act because Henry's emotional state is like at such a high. I think that really helps to give the plays their theatricality, you know?
0: Could you talk a bit about the recent uh, digital production of light switch and what that experience was like, and maybe what you learned about the play through that process?
1: Yes. So, um, so my director, Christina Friedgen, who is a force of nature, Um, her approach to the production was, I do not think this play works on a zoom platform. So we're going to, so after like a few, we bounced around a few ideas of how we would present this and we decided to make it more like a digital, like a theatrical film. And we, the way that we kind of, like, we didn't want to have the actors, like, you know, in their Zoom boxes looking at someone um, off camera. And then like, like we wanted to, we really wanted to maintain the intimacy of the scenes between the characters. So what we did for the filming process was we had the actors in different parts of our performing arts building, like in different rooms, cause we had to follow some very stringent COVID protocols basically the only way that you could be unmasked was if you were alone and the door was closed. So Mm -hmm. in addition to making sure everyone was ready for their shoot, we had to make sure, okay, like, are y'all like following COVID procedures? Fabulous. So, so that, so we filmed it like, so we filmed that over the course of a month, but before that we, during rehearsal, like Christina, um, kind of like Christina, kind of guided our actors through the tectonic theater projects uh, concept of uh, moment work, where we could find you know different um, like like textural moments that may contribute to the characters. Um, we would give them like a piece of text to say and like have them grab a random object. And um, basically creates moments out of them, and I think that really contributed to like making a theatrical film with the emphasis on the theatrical, but also, um, but also kind of giving the actors like a like a stronger understanding of the text and a different way of embodying it which I think was very effective. Um, We also cast an autistic performer as Henry, Mm -hmm. which was very important to me. Um, And I guess like the one issue that I did have is that since we were filming everything scene by scene for our editing team to put together, and our editing team did an amazing job putting the show together, but I didn't get to see like the full show together until opening night. And before then I only had, we only did like a read through of the play twice. So there mm-hmm. wasn't really as much room for me to develop the play by hearing it cumulative, cumulatively and hearing, and hearing it, where is the pacing off? It also doesn't help that we didn't have an audience there. Sure. Um, so in terms of, play development, I don't think it was as useful as I wanted it to be. But I think in terms of, you know, figuring out what can we do in terms of translating theater to a digital medium, I think it was very successful in that regard.
0: Um, The character of Marion, Henry's mother, is very interesting to me, because she's uh, in some ways kind of problematic in how she really desperately wants Henry to be uh, normal, whatever that means, but at the same time, it is very clear that she does love him and appreciates you know aspects of his personality. Um, how did you go about creating this character?
1: Yeah, so, um, I'm about to throw my mother under the bus. A lot of Marion was based on my relationship with my mother and how like she viewed my autism. I think, like, the most like the most, uh, like, like Henry, I was diagnosed very young. And since I was diagnosed in the mid nineties, I was told I'm not going to be able to talk or develop relationships or live on my own, etc. And my, my mother kind of, you know, um, threw herself into making sure that I would not turn out that way. Um, and, but I, but I think in the case of, marion like i view marion as someone very sympathetically because she's like she doesn't always connect with her son but it's not for lack of effort or trying because there's so many points i think there are quite a few points in the play where like she tries to connect with henry but henry is just like nope but yet she's also there for him when he's at his lowest point to remind him you know like for what the doctor said you might become, I I think you're pretty remarkable. So um, I think, I mean, we don't see a lot of Marion's journey in the play, but I do think she really needed the time to watch Henry grow up and kind of do his own thing and see what he would become in the world and to not worry so much about him. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely, like, I definitely knew that there were going to be parents of autistic children who are going to be seeing this play. And like, I didn't want to show them as unsympathetic, but I also wanted to show them as, you know, like, like Marion is a flawed person. She doesn't always understand her son, but she still tries, which I think is so much more than so many other like autistic parents you know, mm-hmm. attempt really. So that was really my thought process of developing that character.
0: Right, and to kind of say that you know your child deserves love, whether or not they ever get a PhD in Victorian literature. Right? <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> By which I mean, of course, if your child does get a PhD in Victorian literature, you still have to love them.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, PhDs deserve love too.
0: Uh huh. Um, Finally, do you have any sort of um, advice for for young writers or for people who are interested in theater who might be listening to this podcast?
1: Ooh, advice I have for people. Um, I think in terms of playwriting, I think the advice I would give is write with honesty do not write with an audience in mind at first. The audience will come later. Um, but write, you know, feel f- feel free to write like the messiest, worst possible play because then you that's the best way to get your strongest artistic impulses out onto the page. And you can always sort that out in revision. Like I consider myself a much better, writer that rewriter than writer like i tend to overwrite because i can always cut stuff Mm -hmm. um so i think don't be afraid to write something awful and because you can always go back and tweak it i think the um the like I, I know quite a few people who um, they say, you know, I want to write this, but like, I don't know if it'll be good. And it's like, it, it doesn't matter if it's good or not. Like it, it matters. It matters if it doesn't get written or not, but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. Um, and then in terms of, um, uh, okay. So this is advice I give for when, when we are able to, meet people in person again, or maybe you meet people still by by Zoom, I don't know. Um, If you're in a position where you ever meet the people who have influenced your work or inspirations for you, make sure you you and you're wondering, what do I say to them? What do I say to them? Thank you for your work. Um, by showing gratitude, I think showing gratitude, being gracious towards the people who have inspired you. And that goes to, you know, being gracious to the people you work with, like that extra thank you, that extra I commun- that extra I appreciate you like that can go a very long way in terms of building relationships with fellow creatives. So don't. So basically, say- my advice is say thank you and be grateful
0: Well, Dave, I think that's a wonderful note to end on. Thanks so much for being on the Art of Autism podcast. Thank you for having me, Andy. Talk soon. Talk soon. Once again, that was Dave Osmondson. His work is available on the new Play Exchange, and you can also follow him on Twitter for updates about what he's up to. See you next time on the Art of Autism podcast.